Don't be fooled. The minute the market changes, those VCs are gonna say, you need to cut 25% of costs, and you just lost a whole bunch of money. I am so excited for this week's guest. If you've been following our work at Beyond the Billion, there's no better snapshot of why we do the work we do than this very episode, where LOD Dupree represents the kind of fund manager we are so bullish on. Starting as a receptionist at famed VCPE firm Insight Venture Partners, she is today betting on herself, having founded Full In Partners, a software-focused 200 million growth equity fund based in New York City. The wild story that got her here, having watched the firm investment analysts spend days talking on the phone, LOD decided that she could do that job and maybe a whole lot better. While again, she does not meet the cookie-cutter profile of a VC, she took a bet on herself to carve a name for her own while focusing on the end goal of building a firm that showcases investment rigor and discipline through her Operator Catalyst model and Mercury Deal Sourcing tool getting into deals like Canva and building value for her portfolio companies. You don't want to miss this. I'm a fund manager now, but I'm also a mom. I have three kids. I'm a former gymnast. I was a competitive gymnast for over 20 years and I am hyper competitive. So the grit probably comes from a sense of competition, but uh, started my career in investing back in 2008. It was actually not intended to be a permanent move. I was planning to go to law school. I've always wanted to make the world a more fair and more just place. And investment became a thing I could do until I could start school and sort of pay the bills through that. And after starting at Insight, I saw an opportunity to use the language skills that I've also built up over my life. I forgot to mention I'm a first-generation American French background, so I speak multiple languages. And I wanted to use those languages to help Insight expand their sourcing outside of just English-speaking territories and into the broader world. And that was really sort of my um, springboard into what turned into a lifelong investing career. So within a few months of starting on the analyst team at Insight, um, I was really excited about the types of deals that I was finding and learning a lot about, you know, companies and how they operate, etc. That led to a nine-year career there. And you gloss over this, but of course, uh, you started as a gymnast pretty late, so at about 12 years old. Yes. And that was really what um, sort of pushed you to even prove yourself, right? That's number one. Yeah, gymnastics did to play a very big role, I think, in shaping me as a person because I did start very late. I didn't have the passion for it until Dominique Muciano in the 1996 Olympic Games. And then I decided that day I need to be an Olympic gymnast. And so I had a lot of catching up to do because I was coming from behind. So I joined the team very late. And that meant that I was doing a lot of practices on my own, you know, outside of practice. I would put dictionaries on my feet while I did my homework to try to get my toes to point more. And I did, you know, hundreds of push-ups every night to just get really strong and fit. And then in gymnastics, it's a pretty unforgiving sport where you have to really train, train, train like parts of a skill over and over again so that when you combine the whole thing, it's just muscle memory pulling you through. And if you overthink something, then you run the risk of uh, freaking out halfway through and falling on your neck and, and breaking it. You learn to really trust in the repetition that you've built up and lean on that trust to get you through the actual moment of competition. And I think, you know, when you're going through those trainings, it can be pretty brutal. There's obviously a lot of injury. You have to learn to just kind of push through the pain and have to stay focused on the longer term goal. And a lot of that discipline, I think, has carried through my life and how I approach work and 
parenthood and friendships and a lot of other components. Yeah. And you sort of brought this to your second chapter, but you became a receptionist because uh, it was a way to pay through law school. And there's a longer story to that. We won't go into that, but really fascinating. But most importantly, you actually thought that you could do the deals better and spoke to your boss at Insight at that point in time. What was the pitch to him that you could actually as a receptionist graduate (laughs) to be doing the deals? You know, it's less sophisticated than people might assume on the outside. So when I was sitting at the front desk, I saw that the analysts were spending all of their days on the phone talking to people. And I'd sort of pieced together in my head that investing was basically like house flipping, except instead of buying a house with good bones in a good location, you're buying a business that has good bones and a lot of potential. And then you develop the business and sell it for a profit. And so I come from a long lineage of general contractors. I figured the skills were somewhat transferable. And then given the fact that I spoke all these languages, I realized there was an opportunity to effectively look at the deals that Insight had done and been successful in in the past, and then go find those in other territories, at least as a you know stepping stone into an investing career. So my pitch was very much... Um, I think I have a unique skill set here, which is the languages. You can put it to use in expanding your sourcing model. Why don't you give me six months to try? And if I'm terrible, you can fire me. Um, And if I'm good, then hooray, we all win. And they were, you know, uh, fairly clear on if it didn't work out, I couldn't just have my reception job back. And I said, that's fine. That's not really what I want to do with my life anyway. So I'm happy to give up like that risk reward made total sense to me to like bet on myself, give it a shot. And then the worst case was I would end up in law school and, you know, become a lawyer, which was my life dream anyway. So that was the original pitch. It was definitely, you know, an interesting um, ramp into investing and sourcing, given that I had no finance background. I didn't know, you know, the difference between revenue and profit at the time. I had zero background in anything tech or software related. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the skill set I think that carried me through my early years was really pattern matching. Where because I speak all these languages, I've developed an ability to learn a language from a much more abstract perspective. Where I look at little different letter combinations in one language that equate to letter combinations in another language. And once I map out these letter combinations, I can create words just by taking like a word in this language has these three letter clumps. And in this language, if I apply those same equivalent letter clumps, I should generate the right word. So I think having this like super complex pattern matching brain that was used for languages translated really nicely to pattern matching like business models, you know, sort of key drivers in companies and being able to identify the ones that would be successful. And so within, you know, the first couple of years of my career, I ended up emerging as one of the more sourcers of my era. And not for nothing, I also, you know, women always give credit to luck uh, more than men do, but I will still attribute the fact that the U.S. slid into a devastating recession right at the time when I was starting to source outside of the U.S. And so the comparative pipeline that I was generating relative to folks who were looking for growing profitable companies in a downturn in the U.S. was just, you know, a a separate degree of performance, which really gave me the credibility and runway to learn all the skills I needed to learn to actually be able to do this job, you know, 15 years from now as a fund manager. Yeah. So you did that for a couple of years and then you decided to go to Iconic, Mm -hmm. an iconic firm, pun intended there. But a question that I had was, you know, you've had already... In, in insight, a lot of background, a lot of resources at your hand. Why not start a firm straight away? Oh, that's a good question. I never had the idea to start a firm. So I liked hmm. working. I mean, I loved my time at Insight. I was there for almost a decade and I learned so much from them. And every day I felt like the dumbest person in the room. And no matter how smart I got, I was always still the dumbest person. And it was such an intoxicating feeling of like being surrounded by greatness and being pulled up and elevated by that greatness. But at some point, the role at Insight became, you know, first it was, can I get a deal done? Then it was, can I get several of them done. Then it was, can I juggle multiple of them at the same time? But in terms of like continued personal development, it was very tracked into deal making. And that was sort of the extent of the exposure. 
manager that we had in the firm. When Iconic called, um, their pitch to me was, you know, you can come help us set the strategy for the firm. We're looking to build an analyst program from the ground up. We're looking to expand into Europe. So it was things that I was familiar with where I had the experience to be able to frame out a starting point, but it came with a different level of autonomy and empowerment where I was actually the one that could design the program and like take something and create. So it was rather than just executing on someone else's plan, it was like having much more ownership of that plan. That was a really exciting proposition. But of course, it didn't exactly work out the way that you had planned. I think when I heard you can come help set the strategy, what that registered as in my brain was you can come be the CEO of this firm. And I didn't know I wanted to be a CEO until I got to that firm and I didn't get to be the CEO. And then it was, you know, really quickly, once I started getting a taste of building, it was like, oh, this is really fun. And and the idea of executing against a vision that I have is pretty compelling. And that sort of coincided with, you know, I'd, I'd been at Iconic for about a year when a guy I know who's fairly well off and plugged into the investment world just asked me one day, like, what would I do if I had a $500 million fund? And his question was really, would you just replicate what you've seen at Insight? And my answer was like, no, I would do so many things differently. And here's why, here's the things I would do differently. Here's why I would do them differently. Here's how it would generate even better outcomes and better results, I think. And at the end of that conversation, it sort of hit me like, how come I don't have my own fund? That's rude. I should have my own fund. And then once that thought was in my head, there was absolutely no shaking it. And it just became like an obsession where I was like, I really should. Like all these things that I said make a ton of sense. And I had never really strung all of these ideas together into one cohesive sort of package. But the second it was there, this is the obvious path to me of the future for investing. And then by comparison, doing anything else just seemed like a waste of time. So that was sort of my cue to head back to New York and get started on Fullin. How did you want to build Fullin differently? And actually, I never asked you this question as I was reviewing our questions here. Why Fullin? The name. Because it's really important to be fully invested and aligned with people that you're working with. You can't have competing interests because if you do, it creates tension and tension erodes trust. And without trust, there's no partnership and there's no... Um, it just hurts outcomes, right? So in order to preserve that trust, you really have to be not only backing companies with capital, but you really have to be backing them with the best intentions and with their own best outcomes in mind alongside yours. So it really was, you know, in terms of how we thought about building things differently, a lot of the principles probably aren't that different, right? Identifying great investments is really key to being a good investor. A lot of techniques exist for doing that. Our goal was let's automate as many parts of the sourcing process as we can so that our team isn't spending time on monotonous, repetitive, dreary work. And for founders, we're not reaching out to put folks who aren't in our box and whose time we would be wasting. Let's make sure that when we are doing outreach, it's thoughtful and it's with the lens of trying to provide value to the person on the other line so that if it doesn't culminate in an investment, they're at least getting something out of that interaction. So it started with this vision of how do we use technology to help automate and drive a lot of the sourcing process. And then the other, I would say, most critical differentiation was for the course of my career, I'd sat on, I don't know, 15, 16 different boards before starting full in. And I was seeing a pattern emerging of uh, investors, you know, sitting around the table and telling founders, you know, the thing about your business is you have to do this thing or you have to do that thing. And this is how you want to run whatever. And this is how you want to think about this thing. And it was always surprising to me 
and I guess I skipped over this part in my intro, but I had jobs before starting in investing. So I worked in a low income health clinic. I worked in tech support for limited brands. I was a gymnastics coach, whatever that's worth. I worked in restaurants. I worked in a warehouse. I worked in so many different types of uh, areas and, and roles. And I think when you're on the ground in a business, you just develop a sense for how organizations operate. That's very different than when you're going through some kind of classical finance training and then banking where you're on the outside looking in on a business and then investing where you're on the outside looking in. And so I was listening to all these outsiders telling the insiders how to do the thing when those outsiders hadn't ever done it themselves and had really to me, very little basis on why they were generating that feedback. And it sort of clicked in my head, like, if you really want to be a good investor, you have to actually understand how companies operate and you have to understand how they're built. And if you understand those two things, one, you can add much greater value because you're going to be speaking a language that's familiar to the management teams and the founding teams. Um, two, you're going to be bringing the resources that are actually the right resources for that company uh, and shaping the strategy in a way that is attainable and measurable and can be successful. Yeah. And what was unexpected about building Full In? I mean, you had a very ambitious first goal, right? For the first fund in the 100 million and beyond, uh, which is unlike many other smaller funds who get first get started. What was challenging in building the fund here? Well, the pandemic, for sure, it was unexpected. <laughs> so that was one component. I would say the hardest thing has been when I started at Insight, they were on fund seven. So I don't actually know what early funds look like. I only know what fund seven at a top tier firm looks like. And so there's a certain level of expectation that I had for myself and for our team in terms of how we operate, how we execute, how we build things. And I would say still today, our actual operational capacity is so beyond our Roman numeral fund number and the AUM that we manage. And it's challenging to feel under-resourced relative to your, you know, it's like we have a Ferrari engine and it's trapped inside a go-kart. And it's really tough to be able to because you don't want to drive too fast because the wheels will fall off because it's a go-kart and you haven't built like the real Ferrari frame around it. But at the same time, you're like, I can go so much faster than what I'm doing today because we have this like powerful engine. So that has probably been the single most challenging thing, tempering my own expectations based on some of the more external constraints around just like how long it takes to raise funds and the reality that in my head, we're not an emerging manager. I've been doing this for so long. Like, duh, of course I can do investments and duh, of course they're good. But then you've got this whole constituency that you have to prove yourself to. And they have tools for measurement that aren't always the same tools that I use. So because I think operationally about our firm, I focus on the leading indicators for us, which is the quality of our portfolio companies and the quality of our process and how rigorous our process is around risk management, quality control, all of these components that are critical to creating a multi-generational franchise. But then we're being assessed on things that are more, to me, they're like second derivative factors. So, or, or lagging indicators is maybe a better term for it. Like people saying, what's your minimum ownership threshold or your maximum threshold? And to me, it's like ownership is a byproduct of what needs to happen for that investment to be successful, right? I could be in a minority position in a company that ought to have been a control deal and fail, or I could be in a control position in that company and succeed. And ownership is, even that is to me like a weird metric because um, people equate ownership with a sense of influence and influence actually comes from trust, right? So like how well do founders trust us is the only thing that matters. If they trust us a lot, we could be a 1% ownership in a company and actually have a really significant amount of influence in the business, just like we could be 55% ownership and have no influence because people hate our operators. They don't work with us. They don't tell us anything. So to me, there's this sort of like gap between how the LP market has 
um, learned to assess managers and how I personally, Elodie, think about a lot of what we do. And that's where building a really great team around me and for the firm has been so impactful because having other voices around the table who maybe understand that language and can translate some of what we do into a language that makes sense for that constituency has been really important. And of course, in your Ferrari engine that you are building, you spend quite a fair bit. I mean, I was at your LP meeting last year and was completely impressed, first of all, by the amount of work that's been done in Mercury. So I want to speak a little bit about that. Of course, you know, sort of leaning on the Bridgewater experience that mm-hmm. your CTO brings in your co-founder. And at the same time, your venture slash growth equity slash private equity type <laughs> approach yeah. to merging companies, yeah. right, which is unlikely in our venture space. Talk to us a little bit about those two things. Sure. So Mercury is, you know, a critical sort of backbone of component of what we're building. And it was a byproduct of, I think, me just reading the tea leaves on how the world was moving, right? The way that sourcing had been done was very network-based. It was very like, did I go to college with this person or do an MBA with these people? And do I have connections? And a lot of that can be effective from a trust component, but it's not very scalable. And to me, if you're going to build a multi-generational franchise, you have to build processes that are scalable so that you know you can deliver the quality consistently over time, independent of market conditions, independent of fund independent of anything else. And so for a sourcing perspective, you know, when you think about how do you identify the best opportunities, data is the answer. So if you have a sample size of 100 companies, you'll probably pick the best one out of 100. But if you expand that from 100 to 10,000, that number one out of 100 might actually be the hundredth best out of 10,000. And now you're really in what's actually kind of a crappy investment, right? So having visibility into the market was always a critical component. And there was no way to do that without using technology because we don't have the resources to hire 200 people to call the entire market. So Eric coming out of Bridgewater had the right type of technical background to actually understand the challenge that we were trying to solve, which was, can we model startup performance over time? And if we can model a company's like actual financial profile over time, then it's really easy to just pick out the best financial profiles and start there as the initial filter of things that we know we can back based on the numbers and then spend time on is the market attractive, et cetera, et cetera, before we reach out to a company and engage in a live conversation. So that's basically what we did with Mercury. We've we've now built it to a point where I think when you were at our AGM, we were tracking probably 700,000 companies. We're now up over a million. So there's a million companies that we are aware of in the software space, all of which we have estimated revenue, estimated growth rate estimated profitability, estimated time to fundraising. And we use all of that information to sort of curate a list of businesses that we want to go target and reach out to based on criteria that we think is important for us. And I love how you sort of challenge the belief that if you have a larger ownership position, you know, the trust is there automatically, which is not the case. And you clearly have built that trust taking a minority position in merging two companies, uh, user centrics being one of it. Talk to us a little bit about that deal, how you thought about it and, and how that all came to be as an example of, you know, how Fullin comes to play here? I would say that deal was probably the first realization. You know, it's easy to be nostalgic for things in life. So when I had started at Insight, we were doing a lot of like high growth minority deals. By the time I left, we were focusing a lot of energy on growth buyouts, which were much more, you know, control transactions. We were raising debt. We were like acquiring a bunch of things and building out platforms. And all of those skills were really exciting. But when I left, I was sort of aching for the early stage 
not early stage, but earlier focused high growth deals. And when we came across user centrics, it was, it was a really cool one because first of all, it was 2020. So it was one of those investments that we had to figure out how to do without being able to get on the ground. It was one where Mercury had predicted the revenue numbers almost exactly. So it had said that the business was, you know, about 3.6 of ARR going to something like 4.9 for the year, 5.9. And it was like three and a half going to, you know, 4.8 or something like that. I mean, it was really like almost exactly the right metric. So it was a big win for us from a technical aspect. And when we started talking to the business, you know, a lot of the typical criteria were there. So it has a lot of high momentum. It had really great retention. It was playing in the enterprise space. Uh, it was in a market GDPR compliance, which uh, I really liked because compliance tends to be an area where it's kind of like insurance, like you just have to have it. And so people will buy a solution. And it's also not one that they're like particularly jazzed about. So generally, once they've bought it, they're not going to be reviewing to see like, do I have the absolute mm-hmm. best compliance thing on the market? It's like, did I check that box? Yes, great. I forget about it. So it's very sticky and highly recurring. And what user centrics had done that was unique was that they approached GDPR compliance from the lens of marketers who realized that if you're taking away visibility and like cookie tracking, et cetera, your marketing gets a lot harder to understand from an ROI perspective. And so they had developed this product to try to increase opt-in and increase visibility for marketers while still being compliant with GDPR. And that meant they were selling into the marketing budget, which is much larger than the compliance budget. And so that was a really attractive sort of profile for the investment. And weeks into our diligence, we were mapping out the competitive landscape and we came across CookieBot, which was much more focused on the sort of long tail end of the market. And they'd built this unbelievable self-serve model where people were just signing up by the tens of thousands. And the company had just hired a banker. They were looking to go into a sale process. And instantly, it was so obvious to me that if you had the enterprise capability here and you had the long tail here, long tail is probably surfacing a bunch of leads that should have had an enterprise solution. And so you could build that operating bridge between which leads stay in the lower value self-serve model and which ones do you actually end up funneling to a sales team who can upsell into a larger contract with better features, et cetera. Um, So we, I mean, this was like, we found it on a Wednesday. We asked the bankers for data room access. They said they were going to be, you know, opening the data room imminently but we got them to give us the old data from months before when they had first started setting up for the process. By Friday, we had generated a viewpoint that this was absolutely a company we had to own. By Monday, we were in their offices in Denmark. So this was again, 2020, when no one could travel. Mortio has a European passport. I have a French passport. So we were able to get into Europe, which was really convenient. And then even with, you know, it was like we had to fly through Amsterdam and then sit at 24 hours and then drive cars across, you know, country borders and all these shenanigans just to be able to get to their offices. But after a day in the office with the guys, you know, we ended up going to dinner and Mertsu just did a great job of charming Daniel, the founder and, and speaking his language on, you know, here's where you are with your business. Here's the potential of your business. Here are the pieces that you're missing to get from here to here. And we obviously started introducing the idea of, have you guys thought about consolidation in the market? Because there's other players out there who might be very mm-hmm. compatible as partners and, or sort of a, a larger org. And there was definitely some trickiness to telling each side that we were talking to the other side without telling them that we were talking to the other side. Cause we were obviously under ND 
NDA, but it was, you know, probably the most exhilarating game of like, I don't know if you've ever watched the Queen's Gambit when she's playing like oh, yes. 12 Love chess it. games at once, right? It yeah. kind of felt like that because on the one hand, we had to secure the funding to do the deal and we had to get these, all these different parties kind of aligned in a very short time frame. but it ended up working out where, you know, we issued a term sheet on, I think a Wednesday, by Friday, we had the data, by Monday, we were in the office, by the following Wednesday. So one week later, we had a term sheet out to the company and we just aggressively front ran that process to keep it from going live and from anyone else kind of coming in. On Thursday, I was on a plane to Munich with Maurizio to go meet user centrics and tell them, hey, like we might have this opportunity with ClickyBot and how are we thinking about this combination? When the bankers called and said that the early stage investor at ClickyBot was back in town and wanted to meet me to talk about the term sheet we had just submitted. And I had to like jump up and pretend I had COVID to get kicked off the plane <laughs> so that I could go meet the investor while Maurizio went ahead and went to, to Munich. I mean, it was one day we'll make a movie about it. As you know, I like making yeah. movies, but it was really one of those things where like every piece was in flow and it was just the absolute best execution we've ever had. And so fast forward, you know, we finally got a user centric deal closed in December. We closed the cookie bot deal in January. Then it took, you know, until July to get the merger actually accomplished because there were a lot of constituents on both sides that all had to get on the same side of the table. Um, but we finally got that merger done. And now we're sitting on the largest player in the market. It's growing super well. The team has evolved a lot. So we were able to introduce a couple of opcats, one of which ended up sort of succeeding into the CEO role, Donna. So you probably met her uh, mm -hmm. at our AGM. I think at the time she was the CRO. It's been really awesome story because it was all sort of led by founders. So we brought Donna in with the intention of her being CRO. And then within a handful of months of her presence, you know, she'd previously been at publicly traded companies. She had a certain level of execution that was, and just experience, right? That was really valuable to that company. And Misha, who had uh, the CEO position post-merger, came to me and was like, you know, I don't really like my job anymore. I'm supposed to be managing 200 people. And it's like a lot of details that aren't that fun. And there's all this stuff we need to be doing on product. And I feel like it's not getting done. And I want to go like own and run that. And so it yeah. was a really uh, nice collaboration between between the two of us where he ended up saying, you know, can you help me convince the board and Donna to have her take over as CEO so I can go do this other thing. And, and now here we are a year later with sort of an amazing team dynamic, you know, both founders still active in the business, but in capacities where they have the most know-how and the most valuable perspective, and they're able to really drive growth in the company and not spend their time learning a new skill set that's outside of their own interests, right? To just to hold on to a title that ultimately doesn't really mean a whole lot to, to a lot of folks. So yeah, especially at that stage. Exactly. So that's the story um, in a nutshell of that's awesome. And, and so two things I want to pick on here. So you mentioned Opcat. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, the operator's catalyst model that you <laughs> thought about. And also you did mention how Mercury was able to predict this deal pretty accurately. Tell us a little bit about how uh, Mercury works. I mean, you know, the reality is we see 110 decks or so every other day, you know, from different funds who claim that they have proprietary deal flow. So what makes yours truly proprietary in being able to sort of estimate where companies are going and, and even at a mill in, in the database at this point? So one I think is the question we're trying to solve. There's all these groups who have tried to build, and I think, I forget what the earlier stage one was, the Chamath Fund way back in the day. But I think there are folks who were trying to create an engine that would predict good investments. But that's a really mm -hmm. hard thing to do because you need volumes of data to be able to actually build those machine learning models or heuristic models that will actually do those predictions. And the reality is you only invest in a handful of companies. And then it's like a five year plus hold until you get the response. And it's a very tiny N and the exits are so infrequent that like you just can't get the swath of data you need to really be able to drive those predictions at the growth stage. Maybe at the early 
earliest stage, if you're doing you know 200 investments per fund, it's a very different um, quantum of data. But for what we do, that model would never have worked. So the question we were trying to answer was really just, what's the financial profile of this company? And if we can at least get our hands on that, then we can decide whether or not we like the market, whether or not we like their business model. There's a whole element that's still very human-led on the investment decision. But for us, it was a question of, can we take a huge haystack of investable opportunities and shrink it down to the ones that we think are most likely to fit for what we do? So that's really how we went around building it. And there's three layers to the tech. The first is just the ability to like collect the data, score the data, cleanse the data, structure it so that it all talks to each other. And that alone is a fairly difficult task. It's probably actually the hardest part of what we do on the tech side. Then the second layer is this ability to build these heuristic models and use machine learning where appropriate to fill in gaps on data, et cetera. And so that's what generates the viewpoint of performance over time for these businesses. And then the third layer is what's actually a full in deal. And that's actually one where we've done a lot of work this year um, and basically did a whole rewrite of Mercury where Eric had spent the first three years building a model that was trying to encapsulate all the things that, you know, Fullin gets excited about from a deal perspective. Like Fullin will like a 40% grower if it's also 40% EBITDA and bootstrapped. But if it's a 40% grower that's raised $200 million, that's never interesting, right? And similarly, like if we're going to get excited about a marketplace business, we tend to get excited about them at a much larger scale than we would get excited about a software company because in the consumer world, your proof point of product market fit comes much later from a scale perspective because it's just a larger TAM and it's harder to like differentiate until you get to a certain point. So there's all these little nuances of how we think about different deals that we've now, and then your answer on how do you generate a proprietary pipeline. So we we measure and quantify everything that we do because we're super data driven. In the last six months, if we looked at our pipeline, 75% of the investments that we were looking at were companies where it was us and maybe one other party at the table. So extremely limited competition. And within that, about 50% of them, we are the only party having a conversation about doing an investment. So we are getting in front of businesses that are just not on the radar for a lot of other groups. And I think part of that ties to the OpCat because since we look at companies from an operational perspective and we have a capacity, one, to diagnose the operational capabilities and the operational gaps of a company, and on the back end of that, actually plug those gaps very effectively, it opens up a segment of the market where more traditional investors who are beholden to you know founders kind of figuring it out on their own and they're more like cheerleading them along the way, but they don't have an ability to really impact from an operating perspective. That means there's a segment of the market of really high quality products with teams who understand their market and understand their customers, but maybe don't have like the most sophisticated SaaS playbook where we can bring that playbook sophistication to what they've built. And together, we're actually a lot stronger as a group. So essentially your OpCat model, your operators callus are groups of people, advisors, a whole network of people who've been on the ground that you essentially then almost like second into the different companies to run different strategies. Yeah, exactly. So companies go through various phases of evolution, just like humans do, right? And every human will have some distribution of some babies might roll over at three months, some babies might take until five months, but between three and five months, every baby learns to roll over. And companies are kind of the same, right? Where they have, there's a distribution of when certain things happen, but there are certain milestones that every business will go through over time. And we see them going through those milestones and we've seen hundreds, if not thousands of companies going through those milestones. And so we're we're pretty quick to understand where to look for, but we always think about this operator component through the lens of, again, trust and people first. So what's the culture of the company? What's the type of profile of person who will be accepted and valued and cherished and embraced by the people in this business? Because if you're bringing somebody who's just not a great culture fit, even if they have all the skills in the world, it'll never be effective. And then our job is really just to make that connection, right? So we're not, we don't own these operators. They're not on the full-in team. They're not people that we have on payroll that we're seconding. It's really more just we operate 
create this network with a viewpoint of being able to help, on the one hand, operators accelerate their careers because they're coming into a company where we are assessing them based on their potential, their mindset, and their merit, not what their resume says. And so oftentimes people are coming in, you know, a level or two higher than they might have been in a more traditional career path. We've had a handful who've ended up, you know, kind of really accelerating once they got into the company, which is really cool for them. And for the company, the way that we do this is really through a sort of trial period. So we'll help define a problem that we think the operator can help solve. So the company knows like this is the thing that we are working on and we can see and we can measure whether or not this is working. And what tends to happen is you start with one problem, the operator gets in, starts to see opportunity everywhere else, and then they end up, you know, working in the business full time. But it's been a very effective way to help businesses on day one versus hope that they figure it out and then pull the panic button when they don't figure it out and have to make really big changes in a very aggressive way, way further out, which I don't think is good for anybody. And I love how clear you are on how you can be helpful, right? That's always a joke that goes around. Like every venture firm says, you know, how can I be helpful without actually intending to be helpful? That's the piece that's always baffled me is like when you have a board member who goes and says, how can I help? And you're expecting a founder to say, oh, I need help with this. Going back to the baby analogy, it's like if you're saying to a four-month-old, I see you're not rolling over. How can I help? Well, how likely is that four-month-old to know how you can help? They've never rolled over before, right? They haven't gone through this phase of evolution. The notion that investors depend on companies to self-generate a response instead of being the ones who say, here's what I've seen and I will help you own that diagnostic. Now, companies can disagree with our diagnostic, right? And they do sometimes. But the goal is we're at least providing a starting point and saying, like, we think this is where the issue is, not over here where you think it is. And if you fix this, you're actually fixing the issue two layers deeper, which will have a much longer term impact than if you just keep putting a Band-Aid on the surface issue without actually addressing the root cause, right? Yeah, I love it. And of course, uh, market conditions have changed significantly uh, since you started. You started almost in the high of 0% cost of capital, crazy valuations. Mm -hmm. Um, How does that stand up with your thesis? And I know we've shifted the language a little bit. I think early on it was, you know, early inflection point of growth. And now you're thinking about it differently. This is precisely the market that we were preparing for because our viewpoint is, you know, if LPs are investing in us, they need to know that they're going to get returns. And our job is to deliver them no matter the market conditions. Um, So it's easy to get lucky when things are going really well and a rising tide is raising all ships. But as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you can see who's not wearing a bathing suit, right? And we didn't want to be one of the firms that was left without a bathing suit on when the tide went out. So as early as 2019, the message has always been, we bring a level of risk management to the table that maybe will cost us some of the upside sometimes, possibly, because we are very focused on managing risk. And so we don't take outsized risk unnecessarily. But at the same time, because we're so focused on risk management, we also won't have the dips that a lot of other investors may have who aren't as focused on that as the sort of primary proposition to LPs. And how we go about that is really tied to what I was talking about. We have the broadest visibility on deal flow, and then a lot of it is proprietary. And on top of that, we're also operationally more plugged in than a lot of other investment groups. So the thesis has been the same all along. It's always been fine companies who are at that inflection point of growth. They've proven their product. They've proven the market. And they are now in that first phase of evolution outside of like the infancy where they're starting to crawl and walk. And we want to make sure that they've got the right tools to be able to do that as quickly and safely as possible. In terms of the impact of the broader market, I do think it's creating a much needed awakening for founders. I think there's been a lot of false messaging that's gone out around what it means to be founder friendly. And 
you know, when I first started investing, you know, people were using terms like participation, they were using ratchets, they were using, you know, all sorts of financial mechanisms to frankly improve the outcomes for the investor at the expense of founders. And in probably like 2012 to 15 timeframe, people started waking up to the idea that like these terms are not very friendly to us and they seem benign on the way in, but they really matter on the way out. And I think that led to a general viewpoint of plain vanilla term sheets is the way to be founder friendly. More dollars at a higher valuation with less dilution is a way to be founder friendly. And for the last few years, we've been trying to sort of provide an alternative perspective, which is Dilution isn't the only thing that matters because if you own more of a thing that's worthless, it's worthless. And if you own more of a thing, but you have a ginormous preference stack ahead of you and one thing goes wrong and you've raised at these exorbitant valuations, like you'll never see a penny. It'll all go back to your investors and you'll have worked for 12 years with no gain, right? And so if you're really thinking about being founder friendly, what you want to create is a deal dynamic, which is fair to both sides which creates really strong alignment between both sides where both sides do well in any sort of outcome, you know, past obviously a, a minimum threshold, right? And ultimately what it means for me to be founder friendly is deals should be structured based on that company specific. So you can't just apply a generic format and say, oh, we just value all of our companies at, you know, 10X and we value, we give them all, we only take 20% and we always invest minimum $25 million, whatever it is. You have to think about like, what are the real capital needs for this business to achieve its goals? And how big is that market? Because the market will dictate how heavily you can lean in, how much you can, you know, value the business, how many dollars you should be putting into it, how many rounds they should be expecting to go raise. Like you have to think about all of those factors as an investor and use those as inputs on how you create the right deal structure for that group that you're working with so that you have that alignment on day one. And then the second component is like, you have to pull your weight. Like you can't just come in, cut a check and consider your work done and expect to get a 30% slug of the outcomes. Like if you are a 30% owner on the cap table, it feels to me like you should be generating 30% of the value. And that means being plugged into what's happening, bringing strategic advice, bringing operational support, bringing like whatever it takes to kind of shepherd that company through to a successful outcome. And so that's really the premise that we have is our, our goal is for founders to know that if they work with full in, they will see a payday. Yeah, but Elodie, you're, you're investing at this time when, you know, at the growth stage, arguably valuations have been slashed the most, right? We've seen some of the big funds launch fund of funds to invest in the early stages because they realize that, oh, we need to be able to get in on these deals because the IPO window is shut. Where are we going to see distributions at your level? And, and how are you thinking about the exit strategy here? I think it depends on how the funds were investing over the last couple of years. I mean, we've always been very focused on disciplined pricing, and we've said this to all of our founders, right? Like you want to take a deal from us because it's a fair deal that represents the real value of your business. And if we're doing a fair deal today, it'll be a lot easier to get to an outcome that everybody's happy with because you're not going to be forced to get this like crazy hurdle on valuation. So one, the answer is outcomes will come from acquisitions. M&A represents 85% of all exits, even when it's the hottest IPO market you've ever seen. So no matter what, as an investor and as a founder, you should be preparing for a situation where your exit is going to be via M&A. Number two, most M&A outcomes are happening in valuation ranges of like, call it 150 to $500 million. There are not that many billion dollar exits. So if you're raising money as a founder from investors, you should be getting into a valuation where that investor is going to make two to three times their money at an exit of 200 to $500 million. And if you're taking money at much higher valuations than that, you need to understand that you as a founder are taking a tremendous risk that you won't get to an exit or that when you do, it'll be at a valuation where you won't see a return, right? And for investors, same thing. And then obviously if you know the market allows and the window makes sense and the company is the right profile, and you want to get to an IPO, great. You can always, 
You can always move up, but you, it's really hard to move down, right? We always underwrote to very fair valuations. You know, in fund one, our average entry ARR was about eight times. So it was in line with where the market is today. If you look at all of our investment decks, we underwrote to multiples compressing. We expected that there would be a downturn. And so we underwrote to a best case outcome of eight times ARR at exit. And I think we're seeing that, you know, most companies are still trading in the like eight to 10 times. So we might even still benefit from multiple expansion relative to what we underwrote to at the time of outcome. But our base case was that we'd be selling for six to seven times. So that was factored into how we were thinking about the way in. That, again, it goes back to this notion of alignment. We want to be aligned with founders where we aren't putting artificial pressures that have to do with what returns we need to drive. Like statistically, where's the most probable outcome? What's the most probable valuation at outcome? How do we value your company today so that we're getting the outcome we need so that you know that you're also getting an outcome? And let's build towards that like worst of worst of worst of worst downside case. And if we all blow past that downside case, amazing, everybody wins, right? But at the very least in a downside, we're also still winning and we're not end up ending up on opposite sides of the table. So that's how we think about the market conditions. And frankly, I think a lot of the pressure that we're seeing when when folks are going out to raise funds, I've heard it's a lot harder. I think these are some of the toughest conditions that have existed in quite some time. But at the same time, from a founder perspective, I think there is an opportunity now for quality companies to actually emerge where if you were bootstrapped in the past, you were getting outpriced on Google search. You were getting outpriced in terms of talent. You were getting outpriced on a lot of things that made it hard to compete. And right now, if you're EBITDA positive, you have all the buying power versus companies who are like slashing costs and trying to conserve and get out of a burning position. And so our our view for you know where liquidity will come from, it's the companies that were focusing on strong fundamentals a year or two ago, which happens to be many of our portfolio companies because yeah. we were planning for this. And I said to our teams, like, you guys want to be in a position where you can self-sustain because when the market turns, you'll be the only ones who can grow. And if you had those profiles, that's now what investors are looking for. So there's a lot more focus on profitability. Yeah. So uh, talking about your winners, you have Canva, Vinted, User Centrics, AutoRabbit, a lot of good names under your belt here. What do you think will differentiate the winners and the losers in this market? And what is your advice to founders at the growth stage who are tuning in? The differentiation will be service-minded. So founders who approach the market with a service mindset of how do I best serve my customers? How do I deliver to them a product that is such high value and such high quality that they can't live without it. And a lot of people talk about, you know, how their their software products are critical, mission critical, blah, blah, blah. It's less, mission critical is important, but something will become mission critical if you just love it. Um, I don't know how mission critical Canva is, but I don't know a single person who uses Canva and isn't obsessed and wouldn't like find a reason to call it mission critical because they enjoy that experience so much. In every cycle, we've seen a lot of like recent MBA grads who are going out and saying like, let's find a big TAM and let's like figure out where the gaps are and let's design a solution for that gap. To me, that's sort of artificial. You're really trying to just build a business quickly that you think you can grow and sell. And it's very like personally driven in terms of like, I want to get to an outcome and generate wealth versus like, I experienced a thing that was so off-putting that I just couldn't not go fix it. And those are the founders that we tend to work with is the ones who just have like a personal bone to pick with the thing that they experienced. And they had to build a thing to fix that problem for everyone else. And they're always thinking about like, how do I fix this thing for everyone else and, and make it better for everyone else. Those are the ones that I think will ultimately succeed. And also people who have 
I guess, risk management built into their framework. So just because you had a really great uh, retention rate two years ago, if you don't understand the real drivers of that retention rate, it doesn't mean you can go spend. And this is one of the things that we look at a lot is like of your underlying customer base, this is such an obvious thing to me, but like how many of those customers are venture backed? If you are selling Mm. your software product to all of your buddies who started software companies, who all raise money from VCs and have money to spend on your product, and you're showing, you know, 150% retention rate, don't be fooled. The minute the market changes, those VCs are going to say, you need to cut 25% of costs. And that means software cut. They're going to make headcount reductions. When you do headcount reductions, there's seat reductions. When there's seat reductions, there's contract reductions. And when there's contract reductions, there's a drop in retention rate, right? And you just lost a whole bunch of money. And those are things that I think if you haven't been through a downturn, you don't necessarily know to factor into your rationale. But fortunately for me, or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, I started in a downturn in the US. I was investing in Europe when they went through their downturn in 2012. I was investing in Brazil when they went through their downturn in 2014. And now I'm, I'm legitimately this is my fourth time around in like a 12 year period, which I think is super unusual for investors. Right. But it's, it's bred a level of like paranoia that I think is actually really healthy when it comes to investing and and thinking about building businesses. Absolutely. And where do you think finally um, B2B SaaS is heading? You know, vertical SaaS is not going to go anywhere. There's so many different verticals that still are operating on stone stone tablets that are being carved with with hammers and nails. So there's plenty of opportunity there. Um, obviously, as uh, the world becomes more digital, software gets applied to more nuanced components. So you're seeing a lot of these like technology or software enabled hardware components and health and all this stuff that's kind of an interesting space to to be looking into. We just don't think about it from a like, here are the three sectors that we really like. It's just tell me what's growing. We're seeing stuff in, you know, MedSpa is a really interesting space right now. We just closed an investment in Fund2 actually in a company that services the MedSpa industry and they are just seeing unbelievable growth and that market is growing really quickly. And so it's one that wasn't apparent to us until we started spending time with it and realized like, Right. Every Gen Zer is doing like preventative Botox and, you know, there's all this like teeth whitening and, and laser hair removal and all of these different services that are kind of recurring in nature. There's a whole industry around them. It hasn't been served well with software before. Like that's an interesting space. Um, mm-hmm. we're also spending time with companies that are doing a lot of like small business infrastructure. And so I do think there's a big trend towards how do you create like just various types of infrastructure for for prosumers, so like single person entities, if you're a consultant or an Etsy shop or whatever. So there's stuff happening there. I think e-commerce continues to grow and it's getting more and more complex. And so anything that's serving sort of this e-commerce industry continues to be interesting. But ask me again in two weeks and our pipeline will look totally different and I'll have a totally different answer. So yeah. Yeah, well, well, really, really a fascinating time and exciting time and, and looking forward to seeing the trends that, that you pop up in the next couple of weeks. But now uh, we, we've arrived at billion dollar questions. So the quick fire segment, uh, first thing that comes to mind to wrap this up here, all right? A moment you felt like truly giving up very close. I never give up. Mm. <laughs> That's our family motto. I don't know. There are times, you know, you have a a company that goes sideways and you just feel like you trusted the wrong people. That can be pretty tough. And we had that happen in the past. And it's very, it's very difficult to feel betrayed like that. Um, Betrayal is something I have a hard time with. So maybe that. What would you tell your younger self? Never give up. (laughs) Three values that you want your kids to espouse. Kindness, first and foremost. Although I would lump kindness and empathy as a single value. So kindness and empathy, work ethic, for sure, and perseverance. What's your biggest insecurity still? Boy. Nothing. I know. I just am so, like, I am who I am, and that's just, there's no changing it, and I don't care. Uh, yeah. 
Mm, I don't know that I have a That's a good answer. One. No, I'll, I'll take it. Sometimes I still get like really bad acne like a teenager. And then I'm like, seriously? <laughs> and like that will drive me nuts. So I'll put that as mine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Acne. Uh, what's an opinion you have that most people don't agree with? I would say I have a lot of strong views on the responsibility of a GP or of an investor. And mm. they go well beyond what I think most people consider the responsibility of an investor. So I think we try to hold ourselves to a very high ethical standard that probably isn't matched with the market. And what would your question be for the next guest? I mean, we have billionaires, unicorn founders, funders. Uh, what would that one question from you be? What's your recurring nightmare? Ah, love it. Good. Well, let's hope that you don't have any recurring nightmares. <laughs> that keeps you up at night too much. But Elodie, thank you so much for your time, for your insights. And I'm so excited for, you know, your multi-generational firm that you're building at Full In. Thank you so much, Sarah. And I'm so glad we got to do this. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chang Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with friends. I'm Sarah Chang Spellings and you've been listening to Villain Dollar Moves.